And I, I will defend my original idea just for a moment from mind control. That's really the long-term goal. Uh, 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5 is that we take every thought and make it captive and obedient to Christ. So if you're having a hard time controlling your mind, which I'll be the first to admit I do, uh, this will be a great series for you and your friends. Hope that you will be here. There's a question that has just sort of captivated me for many years, and I hope that it will um, get you thinking as we start our message this morning. And here's the question. If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If you're arrested for being a Christian, would they be able to find enough evidence to really convict you? And today we think about what would that evidence be? How could you tell if someone were a Christian or not a Christian? And so today what we're going to do is go back in the book of Acts again uh, to a story where people are actually being arrested for being Christians. And and we're going to sort of search that to see some marks. Uh, Today I, I want to talk about five marks of a real Christian. Now, you know, I sort of, no, no, I really hate putting it that way, don't you? Don't you almost object to our terminology that there are certain people that are Christians and that there are certain people that are real Christians? Isn't it a shame that we have to sort of use those terms? But the truth is we do. Because Christianity has been so watered down, the standards have been so compromised, that to say that someone's a Christian in our culture today may not say much. In fact, let me work on this a little bit with you before we get into the, the passage. You need to understand the difference between necessary and sufficient proof. Okay? There's a lot of things that might be necessary to say that you're a Christian, but might not really prove it. But let me illustrate this this way. If you were in a country where every doctor was required to wear a white coat, a doctor's white coat, you might could identify a doctor that way. But if in that country they were not the only people who could wear a white coat, then that might be some necessary evidence or proof, but it wouldn't be sufficient because someone else could wear a white coat. And sometimes when it comes to Christianity, we have some necessary proof, but it's not sufficient. We, we might say a Christian is someone who believes a certain set of belief and doctrine. That's necessary. No question about that. But we also know from the book of James that the demons believe correct doctrine. And they're not Christians. We might say, well, you know, a Christian is someone who lives by a higher moral standard. And that is absolutely true. There ought to be a difference. But there are lots of people who aren't Christians who have high morals. We might say, well, a Christian is somebody who uh, really knows the Bible. And that is true. But Joseph Stalin memorized the book we're about to study in Sunday school, the book of John, it was anything but a Christian. We might say, well, Christian's a person who comes to church. And I do believe that's a necessary part of being a Christian. I think the Bible teaches that. But we all know people who come to church who are not Christ-like at all. And, and so today what we're looking for in this message is not just some necessary proof, but some sufficient proof. What we're trying to look for are some things that might be really unique that would stand out that would say, you know what, this person really, really, really is a Christian. Let's go back to Acts chapter 4. 
Let's go to Acts chapter 4, verse 23, where we were studying just last week, and let's start looking for that evidence. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all the chief priests and elders had said to them. Remember, they've been threatened with their life. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. I love that phrase. We had a great discussion in our life group last week about that. What does it mean they raised their voices together in prayer? We're so blessed to have Peter and Udwak Afangade in our group who are from Nigeria. And when their church prays, they all raise their voices together. And I've been in places where it was like that. Or certainly another custom they mentioned to us last week was when someone leads public prayer, at the end of it, everybody in the church affirms it by saying amen. Now, we do that if we're prompted to do it, but we don't do it normally. But that's a beautiful thing to have our, our minds so engaged together, so praying together that at the end of any prayer, we would all like to say, so be it. May God's will be done. So together they raise their voices. Listen to their prayer. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And then he begins to quote in this prayer, they quote Psalms chapter 2, where the world is going crazy. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, they'd seen the same thing. Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the names of your holy, through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, listen to this. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Okay, what's the evidence? Let's look at five marks of a real Christian. Number one, following God consistently. Guys, you've got to understand the story here in Acts. Acts chapter 1, 2, and 3. The church has come on the scene. Christianity has began and has exploded. And guess what? Chapter 2, they're living in the favor of all the people. People are applauding. This thing seems to be a really great thing. And even people who aren't Christians think, wow, how cool these people live so distinctively. But in Acts chapter 4, we see an incredible change in the beginning of the persecution of the church. All of a sudden, the religious leaders are jealous and angry. They think they had stamped this out with Jesus, and now it's arisen, and people by the droves are following, and now they begin to threaten. You see, it's pretty cool to be a Christian in Acts chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. It's not so cool to be a Christian in Acts chapter 4. Now they begin to realize for the first time that they may die for their faith. They may die for it. And so when you find out you may die for it, then there's this big question. Do you keep on living for it? 
It's one thing when everyone applauds. It's another thing when they take the swords out. So write this down. You'll find out if your Christianity is real in times of suffering. Because we're all good at living for Jesus when everything's going our way. And God is answering every prayer we present to him, yes. But when everything turns against us and God seems to be saying no to our most fervent prayers, the question is, will I continue to follow him or will I quit? Remember that crazy discussion back in the Old Testament where God is talking to Satan and Satan's talking about how nobody really wants to follow you, God. And, and God says, no, you're wrong about that. I want to show you one dude down here. Look at my servant Job. Man, he is so faithful. And then Satan asks a very penetrating, pretty good question, actually. He says, does Job serve you for nothing? Of course Job serves you. He's rich, he's prosperous, he's got a big family. Everything's going his way. Of course he serves you. What would he do if all those things weren't true? What would he do if the benefit package was removed? And that's the question for us, if we want to find out if we're real Christians. What happens if the benefit package removed? I was praying with a friend this week. He said, Lord, you have blessed us la- oh, this last year. You have just, every, every prayer we have answered, you have said yes. It's been the best year in my life. Thank you, God. I praise you, God. And then he said a line that I'll never forget. But Lord, if this year all of those things are not true, I will still praise you. Because that's the test. You see, real, true servants of God serve God not for the benefit package, but for God. You got the difference? Some of us are following God as long as God does everything we want him to do. But many of us quit when he doesn't. Can you imagine having a close friendship, man, and maybe you're doing really well, and you're prosperous, and your business is doing well, and you've got plenty of money and time to travel and do whatever you want, and you've made this person. You think they're your best friend, and you travel to ball games together, and you travel on golf outings, and you just have a great time together, man, and best friendship you've ever had. But then you're in a car accident, or some disease comes along, and and you're paralyzed, and you lose your great job, and you lose your ability to play golf, and you lose your ability to travel, and your income is now really small. How would you feel if that best friend didn't want anything to do with you after that? You'd be offended, wouldn't you? I would. You'd finally say, the only reason they liked me is because I had everything going. They didn't really, really love me. And my friends, God feels the same way. If the only time you want to serve him is when everything's perfect and right, and he seems to be saying, yes, yes, yes. The question is, are you a real Christian? How do you do when the suffering comes? Well, that's one sign. Another sign, I think, here, another mark is, is knowing God personally. You, you, you see in this passage, they had a personal relationship with God. And in John 17, verse 3, Jesus said, This is the eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you have sent, to know God. 
Because Christianity is not simply about knowing about God, it is about knowing God. It's about having a relationship with God. See, I talk to a lot of people, I talk to some people, they grow up in church, and they had a great experience growing up in church. Maybe they were part of a great youth group, and then they left, and they went off to college, and they, um, they dropped it. They dropped it. Or sometimes I talk to people just the opposite. They didn't grow up in church, but they went to college, and they were touched by some kind of campus ministry that was really intense and fired up, and, and they're doing really good, and then they get out of college, and they face life, and then they drop their Christianity. Do you think it's possible that we could have a second-hand relationship with God? Oh, you're going up in church and youth group's all cool and everybody's doing it and you love it and you're a part of it. But the question is not how cool is the fellowship. The question is, did you build a relationship with Jesus Christ that will sustain you? Or you're off in college and campus ministry's all fired up and now you're at some normal church where it's not so fired up. And, and, and you've got to sustain that. You see, I think it's possible for us to have a secondhand relationship with Jesus. And what he wants you to have is he wants you to have a personal relationship with Jesus. You cannot live your Christian life continually off somebody else's enthusiasm. That's easy to do. You see, because relationships need to be two ways. All relationships are two ways. They're a conversation. Now, statistics tell us that 80% of Americans pray. That's nice. But, but truly, if you study our prayer life, most of us treat God as a vending machine. We're, we're just asking for things and asking God to do it. My friends, that's not a, that's not a personal relationship with God. Here, here's a quotation by a man named Eugene Peterson that is pretty challenging to me. Prayer is not really talking to God. True prayer is answering God. I do think part of prayer is talking to God. I'm not going extreme with that, but, but I do think more of it should be answering God. And my friends, that is what happens in Acts chapter 4. Did you notice? When they come to God to pray, they first of all go to the Bible. They go to Psalms chapter 2, where everything in the world was going crazy around those people, but they were reminded in Psalms 2 that God is sovereign, and in the long run, God's will will win out. So, so they don't go and say, God... Uh, zap us and make everything perfect. They don't even say, God, would you zap these enemies and kill them? They go to the Bible. They quote this scripture about the character of God. And they quote the scripture in order to find peace within themselves. They, they, they come from the Bible and then they answer God. One of the best ways to pray is to go in the Bible and to find the attributes of God and let that determine your prayer life. These people, when the world is going crazy and their life is in danger, go to God and remember that God is sovereign. In the long term, God is in absolute control. And they grab hold of that characteristic and they go to God and they talk to God about it. And I would challenge in your prayer life, if you want a good prayer life, you need to be in the Bible over and over again. And when you're in the Word, pray the Word back to God. Best thing you can do for your prayer life is masturbation. Because here's what some of us do. 
Can you imagine if you go to a friend and you just, you, you meet somebody and you just bear your heart to them. You tell them everything going on within you. You tell them your weakness. You tell them the thing, your secrets. You tell them what's hurting you. You tell them what you're happy. I mean, you just unload them. You just finally got this chance to sit down and talk to them. And you just tell them everything in your heart. And, and they immediately, after you say your last word, they just start asking you for some things. They don't respond to what you said. They don't say, I'm sorry. They don't say, I can relate to that. They don't say, I can pray for you. They just, they don't, they they say nothing about what you've just said. They just go to their agenda and what they need. Now listen, (laughs) that's a pretty clear picture of many of our relationship with God. We, we read the Bible, and then we get to my prayer life, and I go off on something completely different. That's why I love the book of Acts, because in no place in the Bible do people have better prayer life. But do you realize in the book of Acts, over 200 times, they quote Old Testament Scripture. Because your prayer life's going to improve when your time in the Word is improved, and your relationship is not a one-way conversation with you asking God. It is you responding to God. You listening to God and responding in prayer. And then it becomes two-way. And then it's a personal relationship. Can I ask you, do you have a personal relationship with God? Is that one of the marks of your life? Number three, here's a good one. They experience God periodically. You say, what are you talking about? They experience God periodically. We, We see a term we saw last week. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And as we mentioned last week, that term is not about a continual feeling. The Bible says when you become a Christian, you are full of the Holy Spirit. But there are moments in your life where you need the words, or you need the power, or you need the boldness, where the Holy Spirit comes in a heightened way, in a special way. And that's what this term, filled with the Holy Spirit, means. It's, it's a word for a point in time where the Holy Spirit comes and He intervenes. Now... The guys, they experience God periodically. I'm not trying to say you don't have God with you all the time. I'm simply telling you there are times where God is more real to you than other times. Now, this point is, is comforting, okay? Because this point is comforting because it teaches us that we're not always on an emotional high. It's comforting. We're not always on an emotional high. Some of us expect to be Christians and stay on this incredible emotional high where every moment I'm filled with the Holy Spirit and blessed out of my brain. Any of you ever go to summer Bible camp? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Okay, good, good. Anybody ever fall in love at summer Bible camp? How does it go? Slowly? No. First night you meet the person. Second night you know know her name. Third night you're picking out the names of your future children. Okay, it, it just flies, you know. And by the end of six days, you know, you are, you know, your parents are having to pull you apart, and you've made all these commitments to each other, you know. It's just going to be love and emotion. Guys, some of us, some of us are that way with God, because let me ask you this: How long does that relationship last? I mean, maybe a couple weeks. I mean, you forgot her name in three. 
I mean, it was so emotionally high and incredible in the moment, but it faded. And so many of us are that way with God. We've got this emotional moment, but we expect it to last forever. And the truth is they don't. Your relationship with God is like any relationship. It's going to have its highs and it's going to have its lows. And so that's comforting. But, but the point here is also challenging. Because when we have that incredible moment with God, we know it's possible. We know that we could have that relationship. So that next slide there is it's challenging, all right? It's absolutely challenging to me. So, so here's what I want you to see here. If, if you have a real relationship with God, it's not just this one continual high. It's going to have some incredible high moments. It's going to have some, some days you're going to feel so close to God, it's like you can touch him. Some days it's going to feel distant. That's okay. Now let's go, let's go further in our story. Let's go to Acts chapter 4 and read a little bit more. Verse 32. All the believers were one in heart. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them. They brought the money from the sale and put it all at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who might have need. The two more marks here of a real Christian. Number four is you serve together harmoniously with other people. Now, I don't have a long time to talk about this, but guys, this is a big mark. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. Why is this such a distinctive mark? Because it's so unusual. Look at the world we live in. Look how many nations can get along. Look how many people can get along. Look at how many churches split. You look wherever you want to, and it is odd for people to get along. And so here's this church, the, the most popular word in the book of Acts is the word together. I mean, these guys are together. I mean, they are loving each other. It's not because they're all alike. They're from countries all over the world. It's probably not because they all believe exactly the same thing. It's just like any church. Nobody agrees on everything. It's not like they all have the same personal preferences about worship or whatever. It's that they're united. Let, let me say this about unity. Unity is found in common mission and common sacrifice. What you notice about these people is they didn't pray for God to get them out of the trouble. They prayed for God to give them the boldness to keep sharing the message. They were united because they had a mission that was bigger than them. Our church will never be as united as it can be until all of us give up our personal agendas for the very mission of God. That's where unity comes. And unity comes when we begin to commonly sacrifice. Guys, it's easy to be critical when, as we would say today, you don't have skin in the game. You just come to church, Sunday lunch is your critique time to say how everybody did. You just lay back and scrutinize things that we all are wired to do that. That's natural. That's very natural. We're taught as Americans to go to whatever event we go to, and then it's our job to analyze it. And we come to church and we do the same thing. But let me tell you, you start teaching those children back there and you got skin in the game. You start going to the inner city and working and you got skin in the game. You start trying to bring your friend to church and you got some skin in the game. And there's unity there. 
There's unity and common purpose, common mission, and common sacrifice. And that brings us to number five. They were exhibiting God generously. They were exhibiting God generously. What blows me away is, is, is this church is so united that they begin to share everything they have. Now, understand what's happening in Jerusalem. All these people who come to Jerusalem, they've become Christians and nobody wants to go home. And so you got people from all over the world. And, and probably most of the Christians were rather poor. And so it seems to me, reading this story, that a lot of people, when the, there wasn't enough money, would just say, okay, let me just go sell my house, and we'll be okay. Now, you can read all kinds of commentaries that try to explain this away. Someone will say something inflammatory, oh, this is early communism. Or someone will say, you know, um, everybody didn't sell what they had, which is true. Jesus told some people to sell everything they had. Some he told them not to sell everything they had. Even in this story, if we go to Acts chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira lie about selling their stuff, the apostles say to them, you didn't have to do it, just don't lie about it. And so we can sort of discount it a little bit here, but guys, let's don't discount it too much. These people loved each other that if someone had a need, they would give up what they had for the other person. Now, there are some different reasons, guys, of why we are not generous with our money. One is just flat materialism. It's just because I'm so caught up in wanting more and more and more that I don't have anything to share with you. I don't think this scripture answers that. Another reason is fear. I'm stingy because I'm scared if I gave my money away, I wouldn't be taken care of. Isn't it fascinating that when these people pray for boldness and courage, the next verse is they sell everything they've got. Why? Because God shakes them up. God becomes real to them. And their money's not so important. Listen to me. As long as your money is big to you, God will be small to you. But when God becomes big to you and you trust him, your money will become small. And then we'll be able to sacrifice generously what we have to take care of each other. The Bible says that we are to do good to all people, especially those of the household of faith. We take care of each other's needs. You're going to have some terrible years. I'm going to have some terrible years. And what we're going to do is we're going to take care of each other no matter what the sacrifice. And when we do that, we exhibit God. I, I love the story at the end of World War II. There was um, in England, in London, England, there was an American serviceman. And London had been bombed terribly. And the people were extremely poverty-ridden. And this American serviceman goes one day to a donut shop and he buys a dozen donuts. And as he's in the shop, though, he sees plastered against the window this little kid whose face is all smudged, maybe five-year-old little boy, just looking at those donuts like it's heaven. And so the American serviceman decides to buy an extra dozen and he walks out and he sees the little boy. He says, come here, son. He says, let me just give you these. And the man's walking away. He just thought he'd done a nice little deal. And the little boy says to him, says, Mr., 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 
Are you God? My friends, we are never more like God than, we are gen- than when we are generous. And one of the marks of being a real Christian is that we're generous with what we have. Because we believe God's sovereign and we trust him enough that we don't have to be stingy anymore. So can I ask you this morning, this is, this is a challenging sermon. Are you a real Christian? I'm not asking you or myself, are we perfect or any of these things? I'm just asking, is there something that says, you know, this is real. Are you following God consistently? Do you follow God when things are good and things are bad? Are you knowing God personally? You've got a two-way relationship with Him? Are you experiencing God powerfully in some moments? Are you serving together with your brothers and sisters harmoniously, even with people you may not see eye to eye with? And are you exhibiting God generously? You say, buddy, wow. That's not just going to church or believing the right thing. Those are some high standards. Because, my friends, that's why Christianity is radical. It was radical in the first century. And in our quote-unquote Christian nation, it will be radical today. So where does it come from? How do you get to be that way? There's one key verse in this passage. Look with me at Acts chapter 4, verse 31. When they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. You say, what's the key there? Shaken. You say, what's the big deal there? What does it mean that it was shaken? Listen to me. Throughout the Bible, the presence of God is consistently marked with earthquakes. At Mount Sinai, the mountain shakes so terribly they think it's going to fall apart. In Isaiah 6, when Isaiah encounters God, the threshold of the temple shakes. Deborah says to God, when you marched out on the earth, the earth shook. Why? Because when God comes down, his presence is so strong, so weighty, the earth cannot bear it. An earthquake happens when something comes that is so strong and weighty that the earth cannot bear it. It quakes. It's just as if you went up north, you know, and there's an ice-covered pond and it's just one inch thick and you tried to walk across it you would have an ice quake because you are so weighty that one inch of ice could not hold you and my friends these people are changed not by themselves not by saying buddy i want to be good on those five points you made this morning they are changed because they come into the presence of god and god is so weighty and so powerful in their life that it shakes them up That's what we're saying in this series. These people are marked by Jesus. They're not ordinary people. They're not ordinary, normal Christians. They're real Christians because they have been with Jesus. And he's so weighty, he'll cause an earthquake in your life. Here's the the place I want you to end on with me this morning. This place was shaken so that they would be unshakable. They were shaken so they would be unshakable. These very people who are shaken by the presence of God go out and shake the world and are unshakable. I ask you this morning, is your life and my life shaken by God? Let me tell you two of the great earthquakes in the Bible. 
Matthew chapter 27. When Jesus is on the cross and the wrath of God is poured out on him, it is so heavy an earthquake breaks out. Our sin and our shame are so heavy on Jesus, the earth cannot bear it. And then in the next chapter, Matthew chapter 28, in the resurrection of Jesus, when the presence of God comes to bring life to Jesus, again, the presence of God is so weighty that the earth quakes. And my friends, when God comes in your life and he cleanses the sin of your life and he empowers you to have real life, it will be so weighty that your life will be shook to its core. But thank God it is because if it's shook, it will become unshakable. I'm asking you, I'm asking me, Is there enough evidence in your life to prove that you're a Christian? That's why we're together today, because we might need to do just what they did. We just may need to pray that we all get shook up. If we could help you, why don't you come right now while we stand together and sing?